This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Beth Malden, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Andrew Israel Ross about his new book, Public City, Public Sex, Homosexuality, Prostitution, and Urban Culture in 19th Century Paris. Andrew, thanks so much for being here. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and then how you came to write about your topic? Sure. Um, I first got interested in French history and the history of sexuality while I was an undergraduate at Washington University uh, in St. Louis, Uh, and both for personal and kind of professional reasons. Uh, While I was uh, at WashU, I became involved in the campus LGBT community. I, you know, only had recently come out of the closet. I really was drawn to the idea that one could do the history of queer people, essentially. The French part was more accidental. I had an amazing professor while I was in college, uh, Stephen Haas, who is a, a women's historian of 19th century France. And he really facilitated my interest in the country and then uh, uh, in Paris, since uh, actually fortuitously, he was teaching a course that took a group of us to the city. So it was my first experience in Paris. So I'm actually not even embarrassed to admit that I kind of chose to pursue Parisian history so that I could keep going back to Paris. And I, I have heard previous podca- uh, podcast interviews with other folks who have admitted the same. So uh, it seems like I'm in good company. <laughs> I think we're all guilty of that. Exactly, exactly. And I, you know, I'm being encouraged to branch out a bit more and I know I should, but I do. I just adore Paris. So hopefully one day uh, I will begin uh, exploring other archives. Okay, so let's start with the theoretical framework of your book. And you're working with Michel Foucault's theories of sexuality, space, and power. And can you set up our discussion by explaining how you bring together histories of sexuality with histories of space and the city of Paris? Sure. Um, So from Foucault, I essentially take two interrelated ideas. Uh, The first is that homosexuality is not a natural thing, and neither, uh, for that matter, is sexuality itself. Rather, it's historically determined. Uh, And I really emphasize in my work that uh, the 19th century, one should not assume that when you see evidence of particular sexual acts, we are witnessing modern sexual identities. The second idea I take from Foucault, the one that is perhaps more important to the argument I make in my book, is that what processes that might at first glance seem to be quote-unquote repressive, uh, policing especially, but obviously not exclusively, 
can also be productive, uh, creating new ways of understanding relationships between individuals and between individuals in the spaces that they inhabit. And it seems to me that historians of sexuality and historians of urban space, but especially historians of Paris, have not really spoken to one another uh, regarding that essential idea, that space and the way people use space can produce new ways of understanding the self. So for historians of sexuality, especially in France, it seems to me space has often been kind of just the arena in which people acted or subcultures emerged. Whereas for historians of Paris, the sexual uses of the city were largely are largely seen as kind of marginal to the story that they're telling. Uh, and so in this respect, we have kind of two historiographies that are telling two parallel stories, uh, sexual actors using the city and the city kind of encompassing sexual actors uh, at best. Um, it seems to me that Foucault's insights allow us to see how these two stories intersect, uh, the one enabling and shaping the other and vice versa. Mm -hmm. uh, so in my story, space and sex exist in a dynamic relationship with one another. Uh, as spaces change, so too do how their use change and how people experience uh, those uses change. Uh, the appropriation of transforming spaces then influences, in turn, the emergence of new spaces. And you can kind of see a kind of ongoing process in, in that regard. Um, the way I kind of draw this out is through the idea or the the concept of what we call, or what they called uh, even, regulationism. Uh, which was a particular kind of sexual ideology that defined uh, regulatory approaches to especially female prostitution in the 19th century. Regulationism was premised on the idea that men, especially working class men, mm -hmm. uh, required sexual outlets and that therefore female prostitution was a, quote, necessary evil. Uh, and in order to kind of provide for this necessary evil, the police and urbanists argued that urban space itself had to find ways of providing for sex uh, uh, amongst these men. And so the police in Paris, beginning in the early 19th century, began constructing what was essentially a kind of extra-legal process of management, whereby uh, suspected prostitutes that kind of threatened all working class women were registered, forced to undergo medical examinations, and especially important for my argument, were ideally to be placed into tolerated brothels. And so regulationism uh, was at one in the same time, it's sexual ideology and a spatial one. And that's how I kind of bring these two ideas uh, together. Uh, and so what I deem a logic of regulation, um, the notion that men uh, required sexual spaces and sexual outlets shaped the 19th century city more broadly than just uh, the regulation of female prostitution. Well, you begin your study in the early 1800s when the government sanctioned female prostitution through what you refer to just a second ago as these maisons de tolerance. And what were these establishments and why do they tell us about the relationship between space and regulationism? Uh, so the maisons de tolerance were simply translated uh, tolerated brothels, uh, sometimes referred to in the literature as bordellos. These are spaces that were licensed by the police, uh, governed by a madam, uh, and stood ideally as the only place where female prostitutes could sell sex under regulationism. 
Uh, the rise and fall of the Maison de Tolerance has been central to our understandings of 19th century prostitution. Uh, ever since uh, Alain Corbin mm-hmm. first published uh, his um, magisterial work in the 19- late 1970s. Um, it's important to recognize not all prostitutes had to live in Maison de Tolerance, but they were the only place where they could, uh, quote-unquote, legally sell sex. The Maison de Tolerance was central to the process by which the police could, one and the same time, enable prostitution. Remember, prostitution is seen as something that the city kind of needs. Uh, These working class men need prostitutes, but also hide it at the same time. And so that's what makes them so central to this argument about the relationship between space and sex. Um, So brothels have often been interpreted largely as spaces of confinement, but that's not really what they did. Um, I don't dispute that, of course, you know, the Maison de Tolerance, especially, you know, more working class ones, um, were not nice places. They were not places where you would want to, to end up. And indeed, in many respects, they were spaces of confinement, but that's not all they did. Um, the Maison de Tolerance also uh, kind of produce new new signs of sex in public space. You had to know how to recognize one. You had to know where to find one. You had to know uh, that what building not to enter as much as you needed to know what building to enter. And so um, the, uh, these brothels serve the basic needs of re- regulationism. Uh, if you're going to um, uh, if you're going to argue that men require sexual outlets, they needed to be available, recognizable, and uh, in many respects, very uh, public. Um, and so the Maison de Tolerance was not simply a place where prostitutes were put, but were also the avenue by which um, sex itself became increasingly public in the 19th century. So you have a system of regulationism in place in the early 1800s in which the infrastructure of the city ensures men's access to women through these maisons de tolerance. But beginning in the 1830s, a new public space emerges that challenged the heterosexual assumptions of regulationism, and that space is the public urinal. And you write that the public urinal, quote, revealed the thin line dividing forms of desire in the 19th century, end quote. So could you explain that? So basically in every major Western city, public urinals have been significant spaces for men who sought sex with other men uh, to meet, to find uh, short and long-term partners, and to simply have sex amongst one another. Um, I argue that this is precisely because the urinal also followed the very same logic of regulation that the Maison de Tolerance followed. They had to be plentiful, innocuous, but also recognizable to those who sought them out, supposedly for you know appropriate reasons. Uh, urination in this uh, in this case, um, but you know sometimes I think that this idea is obvious, but it 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 also strikes me as endlessly fascinating. It's precisely those characteristics that made public urinals such good spaces for men to seek sex with other men in the first place. They were all over the city. uh, And I should state, especially um, beginning in the 1850s, public urinals first emerged in the 1830s and then really accelerate over the course of the 19th century uh, for reasons I think we'll we'll talk about in a bit. Um, 
In any case, they were also in parks and gardens, in other words, other spaces where lots of people are mingling about, where um, men uh, are appropriately out in the city. Um, and importantly, they also hid what went on inside. Uh, they were meant to shield the public from viewing uh, essentially men's genitals from, um, from being viewed. And they were finally also spaces where men were expected to congregate together, right? They were one of the few spaces in the city where it was okay, not only for men to like be just interacting exclusively with one another, but even to be interacting with one another while revealing uh, uh, their uh, their penises, their genitals. Um, it's And perhaps it's important to note, uh, facilities for women uh, did not emerge until very late in the 19th century, 1880s, 1890s, there will be public urinals for women uh, available as well. In any case, you, you have a situation where public urinals are providing spaces for both you know, men who were there for, quote unquote, the right reasons, right? Men who wanted to urinate, but also men who wanted to have sex with other men. Uh, and they're, they're intermingling, they're, they're interacting with one another uh, in some sense, despite themselves. And this creates a problem for the police. Uh, the police are tasked with managing how public space is used, and they therefore have to distinguish between who was using the urinals as intended and who were not. Uh, and what ultimately I argue in the book is that they were essentially unable to do so, that, that, that their attempts to figure out who was there for the right reasons and who was there for the wrong reasons uh, ultimately was unsuccessful. And importantly, one reason it was unsuccessful is that even those who were arrested and assumed to be engaging in acts of what the 19th century police called pederasty uh, had a ready excuse for why they were there. They basically would often say, oh, I was just checking things out. I was there because I was curious. And I'm really struck by the common use of the word curious to describe these men who are caught uh, in public urinals because it, for me, indicates that the urinal itself kind of was an enticement, almost like the brothel, that they kind of understood what happened in public urinals. They would see a public urinal and would almost describe themselves as being drawn in despite themselves. And so just as the kind of appearance of maison de tolerance, of brothels, could give rise to heterosexual sexual desires, the urinal could give rise to homosexual desires. But because men were assumed to be, by definition, uh, attracted to women, hence the idea of regulationism, right, the need for female prostitution, the urinal disrupts that idea by showing that, no, um, actually, the emergence of sexual desire in the, in the 19th century city was much more multivalent, that it wasn't simply directed at the opposite sex. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. As she said, at this time, there was no clear legal foundation for the arrest of men who sought sex with other men. 
And this lack of a clearly defined regulatory system provided a space for self-proclaimed experts like doctors and sexologists to intervene. And they drew from a pre-existing discourse on female prostitution to make male same-sex sexual activity comprehensible. And how did female prostitution shape how these experts, in quotes, understood the appearance of male same-sex desire in France in the mid-1800s? Right. So men who sought sex with other men were most often prosecuted under Article 330 of the Penal Code, uh, the Napoleonic Penal Code from 1810, which forbade, quote, public offenses against decency. Uh, So this legal category was quite different than the kind of pseudo-legal structure that shaped the regulation of female prostitution. Um, On the one hand, public offenses against decency offered the police broad discretion. It was a very loosely defined category uh, and enabled the police to determine for themselves how to approach certain behaviors in public. Um, On the other hand, it was premised on specific acts, specific behaviors that took place in, in public space, rather than identifying specific people. And that's what is quite different from how the police approached female prostitution. Uh, women, uh, you know, usually from the working class, could be arrested on simply suspicion of being a prostitute. They could then be registered and then sent either to the hospital or, or a brothel. And so to the police, female prostitution was much closer to a modern sexual identity or sexual category than was uh, male homosexuality, to use the modern term. Uh, Once a prostitute, essentially always a prostitute. And that's despite the fact that there were legal processes for prostitutes to leave the roles to get unregistered, but most did not actually go through that process. And so the police had a pretty hefty a set of authorities over working class women, which they would have liked to replicate for men who sought sex with other men. In other words, to kind of apply to men who sought sex with other men, the arbitrary authority that they had over women that they deemed simply suspect. Uh, so police and medical discourse uh, that surrounded the, uh, this tension in the regulation of public morality attempted to inscribe, in some sense, an identity on men who sought sex with other men. But what, what I argue is that that identity was not homosexuality. It was rather, essentially, female prostitution. And that's not to say that we don't see aspects of what sexologists will, will later draw on to define and describe modern homosexuality. Inversion is already present in much of the, 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 the expert discussion from the 1850s and 1860s, even. Uh, but essentially, what they wanted was a sexual identity that they already knew how to police, the female prostitute. Uh, you know, and I would argue that this confidence in knowing who and who was not a prostitute was obviously vastly misplaced. Uh, uh, it didn't actually work that way. Um, so in any case, the doctors uh, and the police throughout this period would describe male same-sex sexual relationships as venal, as the necessary complement, and that's a direct quote to female prostitution. Uh, and in some cases, they would simply gender these men as female, as as as, prosti- as female prostitutes explicitly. Um, so what the police were doing were essentially saying that there is no such thing as a fully consensual, pleasurable relationship between men. It's always a form of prostitution. And that would then justify their intervention in the lives of men who 
you know, in many respects, according to the ideology of the day, were the, precisely the people who had the right to access the city in the first place. And it's important to recognize, therefore, that, you know, this is also a class discourse, that the men who are most likely to be as, uh, associated with prostitution were working class, often effeminate, uh, sometimes younger uh, men. But despite, you know, the, the kind of gradations to experts, there was no relationship that was not a form of prostitution. And one, you know, one other thing I should make uh, clear is that it's really difficult to know to what extent the actual men, <laughs> um, you know, saw this in themselves. Uh, you know, the documents simply, uh, they rarely allow us to understand whether this is a form of consciousness or self-actualization, that sort of thing. I do have some limited evidence, right? Uh, a memoir uh, written by a cafe concert uh, singer uh, we know as Arthur, uh, Arthur uh, X, as he published his his memoir, or their memoir, excuse me, uh, who sometimes identified as transgender, sometimes as uh, what we would call homosexual, uh, and did also describe many of their relationships as essentially venal, that most of the relationships they had with other men, yes, were pleasurable, but also involved some kind of gain. And so there is limited evidence to, to say that ordinary men are, uh, did see themselves in some ways as linked to prostitution as well. So where would you locate women's same-sex sexual activity in this discourse surrounding sexual deviance? That's a really, really great and important question, and it, I get I get I get that question a lot. Uh, so, what first? I just want to say that my book, in many respects, you know, reflects the the sources and the perspective that I decided to take at the outset. Um, the police archives very rarely, although they do occasionally, very rarely discuss female same-sex sexual sexual activity in the 19th century. That is quite different for the 20th century. Um, the book also reflects its emphasis on you know, public space. Women's relationships with other women were often less public, uh, especially until the uh, end of the 19th century. That said, uh, there is a discourse around same-sex sexual activity amongst women that is also deeply inscribed within prostitution. Uh, the relationship between what we would call lesbianism and female prostitution goes back a long ways. In many respects, its modern form emerges in France, at least, with the publication of Alexander uh, Parent du Châtelet's De la Prostitution, where he argues essentially that what what they called uh, tribadism, uh, uh, lesbianism, was essentially the lowest level of prostitution. In other words, it was the furthest down the ranks of the social ladder that a prostitute could go. And so in this sense, all female prostitutes were potential lesbians. And one thing I argue in the book is that it's possible, although I do not firmly argue one way or the other, but it is possible that the history of 19th century lesbianism, at least amongst the working class, is inscribed within the history of prostitution. Um, others have worked on this. Uh, I think especially I would recommend listeners to take a look at the work of Leslie Choquette, uh, who has talked a lot, quite a bit about the relationship between lesbianism and prostitution and has traced the emergence of a public lesbian culture in the late 19th century that I address at least a little bit in the final chapter of the book. And it's worth mentioning that the emergence of lesbian bars predates that of bars exclusively devoted to gay men. And so although the public lesbian culture may be less prominent in the 19th century, 
they also, by the end of the century, um, kind of lay the groundwork for later public cultures. Uh, the last thing I'd mention about that is that there is going to be a really great book on the 20th century that will touch on some of these themes by uh, Tamara Chaplin. Uh, and I would really encourage people interested in these questions to, to anticipate uh, the publication of that, that book. Great. Thank you so much for those recommendations. So the groundwork that we have been talking about that was laid in the early 19th century coalesced in the 1850s and 60s when Paris experienced tremendous upheavals in the layout and structure of the city. And in order to understand the policing of public sex during this period, it's important to understand the changes that happened under the direction of Napoleon III and Baron von Haussmann at this time. And could you describe some of these changes for listeners who might not be familiar with this history of the city? Sure. So Hausmanization refers to a project of urban development that was, at the time it was undertaken, the largest the world had yet seen. Uh, put very simply, the Paris that you can visit or visualize today is, to a large extent, due to Hausmanization. Uh, of course, you know historians of Paris have been arguing over what predates Hausmanization and what postdates Hausmanization for a while now, but it remains the case that in the middle of the 19th century, much of the urban works that define the Paris of today were at the very least uh, started. Um, so Baron Hausmann, you know, essentially created in many respects the, his own myths around what this entailed, but, it, but they also involve a good deal of truth. Put simply, Paris was transformed from a crowded, dirty medieval city into the modern metropolis we know today. Um, Hausmanization, this process, uh, entailed a number of interre interrelated projects uh, that revolved around a central goal that uh, is defined, and I'm paraphrasing here by David Harvey, uh, as the circulation of air, goods, people, and capital about the city. So circulation and movement of all kinds of natural and man-made phenomena were uh, at the heart of this project. So. Uh, during Hausmanization, miles upon miles of new boulevards were built, slums are destroyed, given over and the land given over to private developers to build new apartment buildings. The Paris sewer system is overhauled. Um, and for uh, for listeners who are uh, not familiar, I highly recommend the Paris uh, sewer tour, which goes through some of this uh, this history. Yes, it it's, is one of my favorite. Isn't places. it great? <laughs> in in what other city can you walk just straight into the sewer? I yeah, I try and take visitors visitors to that one, um, and especially for anyone who like me read Les Misérables at a formative period, it is well worth the visit. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, and actually, I mean. You know, bringing up Hugo is a good point. Like there were there were many critics of Hausmanization at the time, and some, you know, argued that what Hausman did was essentially change the character of the city. That he made it regimented, he made it too straight, he literally and, and metaphorically, um, he gave it over to capital and investment, and not you know, and reduced the power of the actual people who uh, who lived in it. But recent histories of Paris, and I include my my own work in this this. Uh, this group uh, have tried to challenge that kind of top-down view of Hausmanization and instead have tried to emphasize how this whole process of redevelopment was not 
did not only entail like new systems of control, but new opportunities for people to kind of make the, the city their own. So that brings me to my next question, um, that these new developments and this new layout of the city enabled new kinds of sexual uses that contrasted with um, efforts to maintain social hierarchy and control. And could you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so one example, it remains the public urinal. Uh, you know, urinals um, built for public hygiene are then appropriated by men seeking sex with other men. And indeed, Hausman himself helped make the public urinal um, uh, an everyday object of the city. But more broadly, we can think about the ways in which Hausman's broad goals of circulaza- circulation, excuse me, uh, at one and the same time offered new constraints and new opportunities for, for people to seek sex, uh, to seek out uh, public sex. So ultimately, Hausmanization entailed opening the city to new constituencies to move, uh, to move about public space. The promotion of circula- circulation in this sense, you know, it should be seen as quite literal. The building of new streets, cleaning them up, uh, building public urinals, that sort of thing, uh, helped encourage a public culture that had a new class kind of dynamic, that essentially what Hausman was doing was creating a city in which respectable middle-class people could increasingly enjoy public public space. But we know that that process was very incomplete. Um, so, for example, I, I, I was very fortunate to enter the archives uh, at the police uh, prefecture uh, at precisely the right time where I was able to view a series of letters sent to the police by largely middle-class Parisians complaining that even though this city is supposed to be ours. There are a lot of there are a lot of prostitutes around, uh, and as well as you know, men who were seeking sex with other men, and they were bothering us, right? They were bothering them. So it's quite clear that that there's an expansion of street life, and the alongside the provision of new green spaces and new businesses and all that kind of stuff, men and women who were seeking public sex were also increasingly present in the city. Once you declare the city open to circulation. How do you precisely determine who actually gets to exercise that right? And so what I argue is that this tension helped shape what it meant to live in Second Empire and especially Third Republic Paris. There was a constant possibility of encountering evidence of public sex that shaped what it meant to enter public space in the first place. And it forced middle-class Parisians to respond to sex, to understand what its presence meant to them and what it what possibilities public sex held in the public city. And so it's in this sense that I that the book ultimately argues that sex needs to be seen as standing at the center of the development of the urban culture of the 19th century. And I, I think this claim is especially important uh, as we enter the Third Republic, because as Parisians became increasingly you know, Republican with a you know capital R over the last decades of the century, they they were able to use sex to make new claims uh, as a kind of civic duty. Uh, they would argue to the police that sex contrasted with what the city was supposed to be, but in doing so, sex continues to be the vehicle through which those claims were made in the first place. And so, sex. I argue, uh, was rendered central to claims to citizenship and especially urban urban citizenship. 
And so despite the efforts of Hausmanization, these efforts, even if it remained only as a contrast, made sex increasingly important to what it meant to live in the city uh, at the turn of the century. Well, let's finish up with the Third Republic at the end of the 1800s and the new sexual entertainments that emerged at that time. And you argue that these new businesses placed public sex at the center of an emerging mass culture and enabled the emergence of new publics and eventually new identities. And the Folie Bergère and the Opera Ball were two of the most popular sites in this new mass culture. Could you talk about how these were spaces where men and sometimes women could seek out a culture of public sex? Yeah. So the culture of public sex that I've been describing as emerging uh, during and after Hausmanization was essentially shaped by those who participated in it. And here I'm referring to the culture of public sex in parks, urinals, streets, that sort of thing. Um, female prostitutes, men who sought sex with other men, and those who encountered those people on the streets uh, together produced a f- somewhat ephemeral but nonetheless meaningful culture of public sex. And this is what kind of makes it a public, right? That it's it's something that emerges as, a, as an encounter begins and uh, disappears as soon as an encounter is is over. Many Parisians found that possibility to be quite disturbing, which is the origin point of those letters that I just described. Uh, But others found it exciting. And that created a new possibility for mass culture to essentially domesticate, in many respects, what it meant to encounter public sex on the streets. Uh, And clever entrepreneurs found ways to essentially monetize the existence of a public sexual culture in the third Republic, moving it out of the streets and into venues of mass entertainment. So as you point out, uh, Beth, um, the Folie Bergère and the Opera Bar are two of the best examples of the way this could work. Um, I do talk about other other spaces as well, such as the Croiserie à Femmes, uh, uh, cafes with serving girls, uh, other bars, that sort of thing. But these, ch- these two uh, institutions were major mass cultural forms. Uh, the Folie Bergère, for instance, was a you know a music hall, uh, but it was a music hall wh- which was quite known for its audience and participants of uh, the local uh, prostitutes. Uh, and in fact, at one point, the management, uh, seeing kind of a reduction in the number of prostitutes going to the Folie Bergère, uh, offered free admission to local prostitutes in order to get them back in. Um, and they did this perhaps for obvious reasons. They sex sells. And part of the point of going to this space was to encounter the, the, the folks that you would normally just see on, this, on the streets. But by bringing it inside, uh, the Folie Bergère managed to kind of create a controlled environment for those, those encounters. So if on the street, and what so bothered some people about street encounters was that prostitutes could sometimes disrupt Kind of male privilege in public in the Folie Bergère, male attendees were paying uh, in order to ensure that they always remained in control. the The Opera Ball is a bit of a different case, but it it well foreshadows some of the ways that later queer culture becomes uh, monetized under under capitalism. Uh, the Opera Ball was a, a masked a dance hall, uh, or a dance hall where people often came in costume, often involving masks, which uh, allowed for 
an interesting play of identity where people would come in costume, they would hide who they they were. And this has often been in, interpreted as you know yet another example of the ways that men could kind of pay for access to to anonymous women, uh, prostitutes amongst them. Um, and that's that that is true. But one thing I point out is that it also offered other possibilities. And the opera ball was often was somewhat known as a space where people cross-dressed, uh, and that gender becomes a bit more indeterminate within the opera ball, allowing for uh heterosexual and homosexual desire to become a bit more uh, indeterminate. And indeed, it's that indeterminacy within the opera ball that helps create an image of interacting with that public sexual culture that was out on the streets, but has been inscribed within uh, uh, an institution of mass entertainment instead. So, So in this sense, the book kind of concludes with the emergence of a mass culture that is premised on sexual availability, but one that has reduced the power of the very people who had created a public sexual culture uh, in the first place. You know, more and more people are now going to be able to participate in forms of public sex uh, in many respects through new kinds of identities, lesbian, uh, gay, uh, for instance. But on the other hand, it also involved the increasing inability of uh, those on the margins to really control the contours of what a, a, a public sexual culture would, uh, would mean. Andrew, I've really enjoyed talking with you today. I think your book is a really important addition to the histories of sexuality and, of course, the history of Paris. And thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. We've been talking with Andrew Israel Ross about his new book, Public City, Public Sex, homosexuality, prostitution, and urban culture in 19th century Paris. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.